You're listening to Ice Cream with Investors, a podcast that is dedicated to teaching you how to better invest your money so that you can live a more intentional life. I'm your host, Matt Four, and it is my goal to teach and empower you to remove the roadblocks to your financial success. All right. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today we have on Brandon Cobb. Brandon is the CEO of HBG Capital, an expert in real estate agent and investor. He's been featured in REI Wealth Magazine and Forbes. And today he's here to share some actionable advice around real estate investing and ways to create passive income. I'm also super excited because we have a Nashvilleian and Tennessee Vault on the call with us today. So I'm super excited to share some background stories with him. And I'll just shut up right there and just say, Brandon, welcome to the show, man. Hey, go balls, man. I'm excited to be here. I appreciate you having me. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, we like to start with the difficult questions. What's your favorite ice cream? I like a little bit of ice cream with my cookie dough. I'm a cookie dough ice cream fanatic. And the more of it, the better. I went to Maggie Moves the other day and I got some butter pecan ice cream but loaded it with cookie dough. And I forgot how good cookie dough is when you put it in some ice cream like that. Dude, I'll go and I'll get the, what is it called? The cookies and cream. And then I'll yep. go buy a package of like raw cookie dough, which is probably bad. Don't do that. I'm sure you can get salmonella from it, but I'll actually put like chunks in it and I'll like make my homemade because I can't find any ice cream out there that's got enough cookie dough in it. I love it. Well, since we're both in Nashville, do you have a favorite spot in Nashville that you go to? Have you been to that no baked cookie dough place? I'm not. Where's that? So they, it used to be over in West End. They moved. I think now they're in um, Edge Hill, right next door to where the old Takamama City used to be. The old yep. Lord place, that little strip right there. I'm pretty sure yep. they moved over there. And then COVID happened and I, I don't know where they are now, but that is, that's probably one of my favorite spots to go to. They've got a couple different looks. Awesome. Awesome. I love it. Well, tell our listeners, what's the scoop? What do you do today? Yeah, so I'm a co-owner in HBG Capital. We're a real estate investment firm. You've probably heard of a lot of companies with similar names that do what we do. We're, we're different is we really are targeting asset classes for ourselves and our investors that are designed to be insulated against market volatility. So, you know, we say, you know, hey, bring on the recessions, bring on the contractions because we're ready for it. So, and, and the way we do that's unique. I always encourage people if you want to learn more go to hpgcapital.net. We've got a ton of free resources, free ebook, whether you're a seasoned investor or you're just getting started, we've got the content on there to get you on the same page. Beautiful. And we're going to leave that link in the show notes, but your history on how you got involved in real estate is kind of one of the, the reasons why I'm excited to have you on the show as well here. Can you tell our listeners where'd your real estate journey begin? Yeah, I originally was medical advice sales. And, you know, six, seven years ago, if you told me that I'd be building houses for first time home buyers in Middle Tennessee, I would have I would have bet every dollar that you were crazy and you were wrong. Um, You know, it was my dream job. I spent a lot of years trying to network and break in, finally broke in. It was great. And, uh, you know, not even two years into that role, I I got sat down at Starbucks one Friday and fired. And uh, that's really where I realized that no one was going to be in charge of my financial success except me. And so, you know, from that point on, when things really took off, I had a goal. I really wanted to help other people create the passive income in order to get on the same page. So when I, I started just, I didn't know what I was doing. I was doing multiple businesses, but I went to every single meetup and I was listening to podcasts and I was reading books and everyone was like, get a mentor, get a mentor, get a mentor. And I thought that was great advice. So I started going to all these meetups, networking, meeting people. And I was just looking for people who were doing the things that I wanted to do. 
right? I, I don't think that I'm really that smart of a guy. I got a 19 on my ACT. I was never super book smart. I had to work twice as hard in school to make the same grades as everybody else. But I was pretty good at finding the people that I needed to to get to where I wanted to go. Ended up meeting this guy. He had a big Airbnb portfolio. He's my partner to this day, and we're best friends and best business partners. And that led to doing one flip. Six months later, gave myself an ultimatum to either make money or just jump back into the sales career. And uh, I think three weeks before that six-month ultimatum, like we sold that house and I made some money. And I was like, that's cool. And then from there, I don't know how far you want to go down this hole, but we just took all the money and just, just dumped it into marketing, dumped it into the business, dumped it into coaching, dumped it into mastermind groups. I mean, you know, I, I first two years, I didn't make like $30,000. I didn't hardly pay myself because I just wanted to dump all of the earnings back into the business. So we just kept growing the wholesale business, growing the, the flip business. We had a need to vertically integrate because we we're having problems with contractors. So we started a construction company. So we had this acquisition arm. We had this construction company. Then we ran out of money because um, when you're building houses, and you're flipping a lot of houses and you got to put down down payments, you know, you run out of cash really easy. And then we started a capital raising company. And, you know, when we started the capital raising company, that's when things really took off because we were able to partner with investors and it was just a win-win for everybody. That's when things really took off. Yeah. So I... Um... I, I want to go back to that moment when you were fired, just because 2020 happened. And uh, uh, I think a lot of folks found themselves in very similar situations. From my understanding of doing some research, it wasn't due to performance. You were killing it. And I kind of have this fear with all this thing going on in Russia and Ukraine right now and interest rates about to hike and inflation that we're about to hit a, a recession. And, and that conversation might be coming to folks who probably don't think it's going to happen to them. So walk us through how you felt at that conversation and um, some of the things you took away that you could maybe pass on as advice to other folks. Oh, man. As human beings, we're emotional. We respond to loss much stronger than we do gaining something. Uh, I had just finished up at Meharry. Uh, it was Meharry, like uh, hospital. Mm-hmm in this this surgery and I was kind of excited. I think we we're about to sell some power equipment and I got in with this doctor and an opportunity to potentially sell him some, some sports medicine equipment, which was my primary bag at the time. And uh, left that, it was 4.30. We sit down at the Starbucks on West End and, and you know I'm like excited to give him this debrief, right? On how great the surgery went. And, um, you know, he, he just kind of, laid it on the line and said that he had to let me go. He said he didn't think that I was a fit. And I was, I was so confused because I had this sales award that he'd give me six, you know, months earlier. I was like, what the world, you know? So it's just one of those situations where I, I, I don't know the reasoning behind it, but I know how I felt. And I just kind of felt like, man, I just worked so hard. I was so loyal. This was my dream job. It was just complete despair. I was just shocked. Um, I was really, really shocked. But hindsight 2020, what I learned from it was where every single door closes, there's an opportunity that opens. And it might not be apparent in that moment, but take that opportunity that life's giving you and just and run with it. Yeah. I mean, pain and experiences in general are just the lenses and you get the opportunity to change how you view that situation through the lens that you decide to put on. You mentioned finding a partner afterwards. Did you already know that partner? And did you know he was involved in real estate or how did you all meet? Yeah. So I'm a big Tony Robbins fan, right? Take massive action. I didn't know what the heck I was doing. I was on meetup.com going to every single meet. I was signing up for everything. So that happened after 
I got fired. I think for like two weeks, I sat on the couch and I was like, man, I need inspiration. <laughs> Try this entrepreneur thing. What should I do? Ah, let's binge Shark Tank for four hours a day to get ideas. And I think I saw this guy on Shark Tank that like had a potato business selling pictures of like on potatoes. And I was like, if this guy can make money doing this, I have got to figure out a way to do this. So that, that was a little surprise motivation that I got from, from watching some Shark Tank. And then from that point, I was like, I'm done reading books. I'm done doing analysis process. I'm just going to take massive action. I was like, I'm going to find a mentor and I'm just going to figure out ways to add value to them. I don't know how I'm going to do that, but I'm just going to show up to all these meetings. I'm going to meet all these people and I'm going to ask them what they need and what their obstacles are and where they're trying to go. And I'm going to help them get there. How I'm going to do it, I don't know. Create the problem and then solve it. That's yeah. the advice I'd give to somebody who's just starting out. Create a problem first and then solve it. Yep. Yep. I always like to ask people too, and I'm going to ask you after we're done with this conversation is how do I add value to you? And, you know, sometimes people say, eh, I don't know, I don't really need anything right now. But if people are smart, they're always thinking about the things that they need in their business at that moment. And they might throw that out there to you. And even if you can't, if it's far outside of your expertise, if you follow up and show that you tried to add value around that, that's more than 99% of the folks out there. And usually that broaches a good conversation or a good touch point with the person to continue that relationship. Is that um, kind of how you found your mentor is they asked something around value and you're just able to go go find that value for them? Or what did that look like? We were the only two that showed up to the meetup and we hit it off first 30 minutes. I don't think we even talked about real estate. Uh, he was from Colorado Springs. I had just gotten back from there two weeks ago. So we talked about doing the incline, this really, really hard physical thing. I know that you do triathlete stuff, which is cool. I might talk to you about that a little bit, but I was like, what, you know, what do you need? You know, he had an Airbnb portfolio. He was visiting Tennessee because his girlfriend lived here and was going to school here. And so he was in town and, you know, he was trying to get operations kind of up and running here. And I was like, you know, what are you trying to do? And he's like, well, I'm trying to grow my business here. I'm like, well, what does that look like? Well, you know, I want to start flipping houses, wholesaling houses here. And I was like, you know, what, you know, I, I knew what flipping houses was. I didn't know what wholesaling houses was. And I was like, well, show me what you're trying to do. And he's like, okay, well, I mean, this is what I do. We went out and did driving for dollars. And I was like, oh, okay. So you just find these really dilapidated houses, drive neighborhoods, and then send them a mailer. He's like, yeah. And he showed me this little system he had for sending a mailer. And I was like, okay. So for five, six weeks, I literally, I can, I can literally say, and I've got a map to prove it. I've driven every single road just about in all of Davidson County and the tertiary markets. And I just yep. look for dilapidated homes. So we built up a list of like 5,500. He paid for some of the marketing. Uh, we sent mailers out to him. I was answering the phones. Uh, you know, I had a sales background. So that was really beneficial when I would go on these appointments. I was like, man, this is a lot easier than selling stuff to doctors. Holy schmoly. I like this business consumer stuff a lot more than I do B2B surgeons who are super, super busy. So I had an advantage with my sales background and I started closing deals. And man, it, it just, it turned into something where he had to move here and move like all those operations here because it just really took off. I mean, we're, we'll build 66 homes this year. We're on track to potentially double it next year. Um, you know, the growth has just been substantial. So figuring out what that person wants and just taking massive action to go out there and get it for them. And don't expect anything in return, right? Because if you have that mindset, they're going to pick up on that. And it's just a huge turnoff. So really just going out with the intention of genuinely wanting to add value and help people. 
Yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, I love connecting people more than anything. I don't know why it's like one of the biggest dopamine rushes I get when you say, Hey, I'm looking for somebody like this and I have them in my Rolodex and I'm connect people and they take off from there. Um, so talk about nothing in return. That's what I get in return is that dopamine hilt. But you talked about, um, one thing that I want to highlight was basically like your unique advantages, right? And you and I share the commonality of being here in Nashville, which is a booming market right now. And my unique advantage to a lot of folks is the fact that I've been here for 15 years and I've seen the development and I still know the parts of this market that haven't been developed, but are going to be developed. I added some value to somebody looking to invest uh, out near the soccer stadium, which opens up here in a couple months. Um, and you have a sales background and, and those are the kind of unique advantages that I think people don't realize that they have. So I'd encourage everybody from this conversation to think like you want to get involved in this. You want to add value to people. What is your unique advantage that you can provide to people and then go around telling people that that's what you can do to help them. And you'd be surprised what comes back to you. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's, it's huge when every, everybody has something that they're good at right? You've got some kind of unique advantage. You just need to figure out what it was and then outsource everything else. Yep. Yep. Um, so you were talking about wholesaling properties. Was there a specific area of Nashville that you were focused on? And, and there's a reason why I asked that because I want to bridge that into your, your construction business now, but was there a specific area that you were focused on? Man, originally we were all over the place. We were just looking for opportunity and we figured the bigger net we had, the more we would catch. So we were in Davidson County, we were in Murfreesboro, Gallatin, Lebanon, Dixon, all the tertiary markets, right? So originally we were all over the place. Now we're only in like two neighborhoods like yeah. where we're going, right? So there's a lot of value in being able to niche down in that sniper approach. And it comes down to relationships, and we kind of touched on that a little bit. But yeah, when we started out, we it was a big net, it was super wide, and like I just we just wanted whatever business would come our way. We weren't picking. That, that's the exact question I wanted to ask. Was do you do, looking back on it? Would you have started really small and like a single zip code, or do you think that the fact that you branched out wide, figured out what was working, and then niched down was helpful? The key blue oceans, chase yep. blue oceans. When we moved in the new construction. Oh my God. It was a complete game changer, especially because we were vertically integrated. So my advice to my older self would be chase those niche opportunities, those blue oceans. Like right now in Nashville, for example, if you're a wholesaler, go into these neighborhoods where the city has rezoned it for higher density and start looking, going door to door, knock on doors. I mean, you got to break through the noise. There's so many people out there receiving mailers and phone calls and text blasts. You got to break through the noise. So once we've established one deal in the neighborhood, we go knock on every door. We know all the neighbors. We're giving out business cards. We're saying, hey, call us if you know we're too loud in the neighborhood. I mean, you know, we've got like 28 homes going up literally on like three streets in Bordeaux, right? And so being able to like get down and hone down and really niche down and be different yep. than everyone else. Right now, if you're wholesaling like single family Real estate, it is a bloodbath. There are so many people. When I go on appointments, there'd be a stack of like nine other mailers they've got. They have four more appointments set up. So look for those niche opportunities. I know some wholesalers in this market that are killing it because they've really niched down where they just sell to builders, right? They're just looking for land opportunities or they're doing something a little bit more complicated, like rezoning the land that it's tougher to get into like entry level. And those are blue oceans and they're killing it. So Whenever you feel like you're in a red ocean, like try to find something that's like very niche and swim to that blue ocean. That's the difference. 
Yeah, there's a there's a good book about that, and I can't remember the name or the author on that. Do you do you know the book that talks about blue oceans? There, so it's funny. Russell Brunson made it really famous, right? He wrote the book Expert Secrets and Dot Com yeah. Secrets and Traffic Secrets. He's like really made it big. But I mean, there's a book. Uh, I forget the name of it. Uh, it was written in like 2003 called Blue Oceans, right? Yeah. So the concept's not new, but Russell Brunson's made it very, very popular. Yep. Yep. And I, I watched Russell speak several times now on the internet. And one of the things he talks about is like, there's a niche and then there's a sub niche of that niche. And then there's that third level down. You want to get to that third level down and go dominate because how you get to that first level is you dominate that third level, then move to the second level and then go upstream. So um, you mentioned as you were scaling this thing that you were wholesaling and flipping properties and that you were struggling with contractors and, and some of the challenges there. As we move into a time when uh, cost of goods is going through the roof, labor, copper, things like that, and in finding good quality contractors is more difficult. Can you talk to us a little bit about some of the problems that you had and how you were able to overcome that before bringing it all in-house? Yeah. So before we were vertically integrated, we were hiring general contractors and we were hiring builders. And I'm not, I, I don't like risk which led to our whole investment thesis and what we invest in. The builders were taking way too long to build homes. I, I want to be in and out of homes in like eight, not nine months tops. But when it takes longer than 12 months to build something, there's a lot of market risk there. And then really there's a lot of risk with if they were to bite off more than they can chew or go bankrupt or become disabled, you know, that's a big, big risk factor because all of a sudden your whole portfolio is at risk. So we're having a lot of trouble getting guys to show up, especially with the flips, because you know we're being, you know, we're we were being very cheap and we wanted the best pricing. Sometimes you don't get the best contractors when you have you know really, really competitive pricing. And we had we had to do that because we were getting squeezed. There was so much competition, right? You know, five, five years ago it was a really, really good market, right? Um, you could make fifty, sixty thousand dollars on a home and sell it for three hundred and three hundred thousand dollars, three hundred fifty thousand dollars. You know those margins are pretty safe. But we got to the point where I'm not flipping a home and making eight percent on my gross, eight percent market change, and your profits are wiped out. And it was just too much risk for us. It was too much risk for our investors. We didn't like that. But when we started managing it in-house and we hired a construction coordinator, we hired project managers, we hired superintendent, you know, my partner's very involved in the construction. One, we were able to find better contractors when we transitioned the new construction because we're able to pay them a lot more money. There's a lot more work. It hired a much higher talent pool. So that changed everything. So we're digging through a lot of dirt initially to find the goal with the contractors. You're going to, you're going to have to go through a lot of them. And so now we're in a position where we've got a ton of A plus subs. They don't work for anybody else. They just do work for us. We've got a team that manages everything in house. So our costs weren't down because we cut out the builder fee Our time to build went down because we're able to cut out the, uh, you know, the, when the builder builds for a fee, he's not really concerned about the getting the project done super quick. Um, so our costs went down and man, there was just, we had so many less problems because when you're digging into these really old homes, what we'd find is you could find a 10, 15, $20,000 problem you didn't see. And, you know, if you're only making 30, 35, $40,000 on it, I mean, that's half your profit right there. We didn't have yeah. that problem with the bills. There was just so much equity in the new builds 
I mean, prices could go up 10, 15%. And I mean, we still had a great, great runway. Yeah. One of the things you just talked about was reducing your time frame. I, I think as we get into a volatile market here, one of the easiest ways to reduce your risk into something is to reduce your, compress your time frame and compress your time period. And so I'm involved in a lot of fix and flip funds right now. And one of the things I tell folks is it's probably not the greatest return. I'm not getting equity in the property, but what I am doing is I'm compressing my returns. Those are six month loans. And if they want to extend those loans, then they're going to have to sign additional, um, uh, an extension fee, plus the interest keeps on accruing. So I think compressing your time fr frame is a, is a way to reduce risk. But how did you, how did you weed out the noise of the contractors specifically. So I've done a couple burrs and a couple flips here in the Nashville area, and I've run into the same issues that you just mentioned because we are a booming town right now. I mean, there's skyscrapers going up everywhere. So if you're any kind of good contractor, you are not uh, uh, running the risk of not finding work. You can go work on one of these big skyscrapers or you can work for a company that does building. How were you able to kind of weed out through the bad contractors to find the good ones? Slow to hire, fast to fire, right? If guys aren't performing, we're very quick to turn around. One, one thing we did that really benefited us is we put a filter in place where we would kind of go cherry pick the contractors doing a lot of these larger developments because we figured that the big boys had already vetted them for us. And then it was up to us to provide value to them and figure out a way to give what we found. What you found is on these bigger developments, they get squeezed pretty hard. So we yeah. could afford to pay them more and treat them better. One of our project managers, you know, once, once you got it, like I said, you got to turn through a lot of dirt to find the gold. Beautiful. I mean, two things I would take from there is praising. Uh, I think that's the most important part of being a good leader is leading with the carrot, not with the stick. You're more likely to get a lot better results longer term if you lead with the carrot. And then you too, you talked about adding value, like creating websites for them and their company. I mean, that's huge. A lot of these construction folks get into construction because they're really good at construction. A, an area, by the way, where I'm terrible at. I add no value there. Um, but where I can add value is on the business side. And I think uh, showing and adding value to them in that area is really, really helpful. Um, I want to get into how you got into this uh, building single family homes for first time home buyers. Uh, how do how were you able to make that shift? And then I want to get through like the process because that's a process that interests me, but I don't know much about, and I kind of want to dig into that. So, how why did you make this shift, and how did you make that shift? Yeah, so we had done probably seven new builds over the years, sort of by accident. It was you show up on an appointment and it's a fire damaged home. It's halfway burned down or it's a tornado damaged home, you know, national tornadoes years ago. And so we were basically buying it for less than what the land was worth. And we we're like, well, you know, it's fire damaged. Home. Let's just cut out all the black stuff. We'll get the city to come out. We'll get a structural engineer to come out and just reframe up on top of that. And that was, you know, it was pretty much a new build. So we did that. And then we had one where, complete burnout. And we're like, let's just scrape it down to the foundation. And, you know, we priced it out and we did it. And what we learned when we look back, uh, there was a moment where we were doing this full gut rehab. We were like nine months into it. And we had just sold this new build that had started at the same time. And we were like, wait a minute, we just built a house in six months and we're still rehabbing this one house nine months in. Something's wrong here. And the margins on the flip were probably like $35,000, $40,000, $45,000 maybe. And on the new build, it was like $120,000. We're like, wait a minute. There's so much more equity there. And we did it faster. Hang on a second. 
So this is at the same time where we're kind of feeling the pressure of all the competition. You know, we had a big marketing machine, big sales team going for the wholesaling and flipping, but we're really feeling the competition. We're feeling the pressure. Margins are getting squeezed. And we're like, what if we just shut down all the marketing and, and pivoted completely, turned the whole sales team attention to just new builds? And so that's what we did. We had certain neighborhoods we targeted that the city had. I'm a big big fan of practicing what I preach. We went to the areas where the city had changed the zoning. They were wanting density. And like, we literally went like knocking on doors uh, in the neighborhoods, ended up getting four, four new builds, like on the first one. And then we just knocked that whole area and then started going to the other counties. We're like, well, this worked really well. So we went to the tertiary markets. We just walked into the, you know, the, the building commissioner's office and, you know, the mayor's office scheduled a meeting and said, Hey, pulled out a map. We said, where do you want density? Where do you want lots of homes? Again, adding value, giving, giving them what they want. And so when yeah. they showed us on a map where they wanted density, we just went and we knocked those areas because we knew we were going to get the rezone. We knew we were going to be able to build a bunch of houses. And so that's, that's basically how we got started. So are you, are you doing that in Davidson County today? Or are you doing it in the surrounding areas? So we're pushing away towards Davidson County. We probably got 20, eight builds in one neighborhood going up right now. We've got 13 on the way, all of it's in Bordeaux, right? And then we've got a lot going on in Dixon County. And the reason why we're pushing away from Davidson County is it is taking so long to get permits. Again, I'm not risk. Um, I don't like risk. And so we don't buy anything until it's permitted. I've seen a lot of people make this huge mistake because then they go through the permitting process after they bought it and they realize that there's something wrong with title, abstract, or, you know, they have to put in $100,000 with the you know, stormwater drainage. And so you can really find out a lot of heavy baggage that you don't want during the permit process. So, you know, if it's taken six months, eight months to a year, like, you know, that's, it's tough to do that. Whereas in these other markets, you know, three, four, five months, I can have a big rezone and everything approved. We want to work with business friendly municipalities. That is yep. our goal. Yep. And so when you're talking about the permit process, are you getting an area rezoned before you'll go into that area and buy, or are you getting into that area and feeling the market out and then trying to get it rezoned before you buy? Like, what does that look like? So we already know the areas where they're supporting rezones because they're already, they're already there. You can see it, right? You get the Davidson parcel map, you can pull it up and you can see the different zoning in there. So it's, it's very clear which areas they're supporting it. So, you know, we've got a 13 build under contract right now. It's not a rezone, but we're subdividing it. So we're under contract and we're using our general contractor's license to take it through the subdivision process. And we will permit every single one of those lots where it is build ready. And then we will buy it with our investors money. Beautiful. So you've turned your sales and marketing engine towards finding uh, big swaps of land that essentially you could subdivide and then build on it based off of what the county and every county is like this has already said that they want to go re rezone. Yes. Add value to the city officials, go to them, figure out what they want and then give it to them. We also realized that, you know, we were, we were all over middle Tennessee originally, right? You know how hard it is to manage yeah. 15, 20 projects at a time that are an hour and a half, two hours away from each other. It is a logistical nightmare. And quite frankly, it's really unfair to our project managers and our team. So we realized it's just as easy to talk to one person where you can build 10 homes on a piece of land as it is to talk to somebody who you can only build one or two homes on their piece yep. of land. So yep. you take the amount of time you're spending instead of talking to, you know, 200 people 
to do 30 deals. Now you're only talking, we might talk to like 20 people. I mean, that's it a year. And we've got this huge pipeline for the next year, two years set up. Yeah. I actually think like uh, Grant Cardone's like go big or go home. And then there's this guy out there that's like go small or go home. Like you don't have to always yeah. go big to make an impact in whatever your financial situation is. Um, I actually think this is an area where size and scale does matter, right? You want to go talk to somebody with 50 acres versus talking to 50 people with one acre. That way it's just easier. One conversation, you get the deal done. It takes as much time as it does to do uh, one, one acre property. Yeah. And, and there's less competition because people, you know, it's a little bit more of a complicated process to get something rezoned or subdivide it and be transparent with the seller. A lot of people can't manage these, you know, these three, four, five, six month turnaround times because they're not transparent with the seller and they lose them. Like we're, dude, we, we bring them to all the meetings, right? We tag them on all the emails with the title company. We want 100% transparency and they like that. And then we get referrals now. Boo, people are just bringing us stuff. We got more deals than we can buy. Yep. Yep. Um, I want to ask a super hyper local question that maybe maybe won't make sense to a lot of uh, our listeners, but how are you getting past the perking issue? So in middle Tennessee, we have a lot of limestone and limestone means that you can only put so many bathrooms on a specific acre based off of how the water will flow through the soil. How are you, are you doing that before you buy? Is it part of the due diligence process? What does that look like for you? That's part of the due diligence process. And we've built a great relationship with a soil scientist who can get out there Got pretty it. darn quick because we keep him so busy and so well. Yeah. If it doesn't perk, I mean, we don't buy it. Right. Yeah. That's the reality of the situation. And that is a localized question to the middle Tennessee market, but there are other markets out there like in, in uh, Colorado, I was out there the other day and they were like, yeah, they can't build there because there's some uranium under the ground. And when I lived in Florida, they were like, they can't build there because there's some swamp under there. So it's just a, just a overall question for your specific market. There's going to be issues on doing this kind of strategy. You want to figure out what that is and how you can solve it pretty quickly. So you can move on an offer and don't get stuck with 50 acres of land that you can't build on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you want to make sure that you've got every, your due diligence is flawless. That's important. Now, are you all accepting capital investors for these new builds to build them and then sell them off or, or where do passive investors fit into your operating model today? Yeah. So we've got a fund set up. If it's a great fit for people who are a big believer in Tennessee and everything it has to offer as far as insulation goes, um, you know, there's no state income taxes. It's affordable compared to the rest of the country. Nashville is just hugely desirable. Businesses are moving here in droves. And right now, nationwide, the most undersupplied, highest demand product is, you know, affordable housing. And when I say affordable housing, I'm not talking about, you know, we're not building Section 8 or low income housing. I'm talking about, you know, a first time home buyer, $350,000, $360,000 home. And that's what we invest in. So uh, most of our deals are funded right now, but in the horizon, we're always raising money and looking for people who are going to be a right fit for it. We'll have opportunities down the road. Yeah, beautiful. I could go on a two-hour tangent on why I believe Tennessee is a fantastic market. But if you don't believe me, PwC just put out their property uh, uh, list of areas that they would focus on. And Nashville was the number one market again for that for that list. So, um, well, Brandon, fantastic conversation. I want to switch this now into the last round. We're calling this the five toppings. Our first one is, what is your favorite book or what's, your, what's a book you've read recently that's given you a paradigm shift? Yeah, so big fan of Who Not How. This, I saw this that was a you. huge paradigm shift. I, I keep it right here. 
Uh, I read it probably six, seven, eight months ago, but I keep it right there as a reminder. People get this book confused. They think that, oh, who not how? I just need to go hire somebody. You need to hire somebody that is going to teach you how to do the position that you're hiring. I used to try to build these extensive onboarding guides and training programs and pay for extent, you know, very expensive training. Like I wanted to give them all the tools to succeed. I did not want them to feel like I felt when I first started medical device sales, which was throw you out of the water, sink or swim, go. And what I've realized is it's good to have systems and processes in your company and get them acclimated and make sure there's a culture fit. But I don't hire anybody now that can't teach me something about the position I'm hiring for. That superintendent better come in and be able to just pick apart our systems and processes and build it and make it way better. Social media manager, they've been able to teach me something about social media. So who not how was a big paradigm shift for me because I'm, I, it just changed how I hire and who I'm looking for. That's a, uh... I kind of want to nerd out after this on that. Cause that, that gave me a thought in my mind right now. I'm struggling with, I'm doing everything. I want to find a who, not how person. And I never thought about it. Cause I'm sitting here like mapping out my process and systems and all this kind of stuff. When really you're right, like find somebody that could build that process for you and then teach you how to do what you're hiring for. So that that's pretty, I like that. I like that. Um, our second one is I believe the person you become 10 years from now is directly correlated to the things and the habits that you do every single day. What are some of the things that you do every day? I work out just about every single day. It, you know, a lot of people say, you know, you need to meditate every day. And uh, that's one huge thing I do. It's my rock allows me to just mentally decompress. And surprisingly, except for the weekends, I'm a big foodie, but I eat the same thing every single day too, as well. So those two things have been able to give me that consistency to, you know, really keep the discipline to accomplish the bigger things that I want to do. Yep. I love it. You know, uh, you know, I'm big in Iron Man, So I, I love the workout piece. Um, our third one is what's the best piece of advice you've ever received? Create the problem and then solve it. I think that's the big, without that, I would have never gotten started. A lot of people, you know, I, I love my fiance to death. You know, she'll talk about issues and like she puts up all these mental hurdles before it ever even happens. I'm like, you don't even have this problem yet. And you're already thinking of a way of why your idea is going to get shot down. Like, no, create the problem first. Go put a deal under contract. Don't worry about going and finding the money. Just go put a deal under contract or, or it's going to be controversial. Quit your job, right? You're going to create an income problem for yourself. And I guarantee you, you're going to have a motivation that you've never had in your entire life. When you don't have any income coming in and you're wanting to pursue your goals and dreams and you quit your job, I promise you, you will behave and think and act in a completely different way. So create the problem first and then come up with a solution. That's funny. I, I like that. Um, our fourth one is what's the thing that you're most proud of in your life? I, you know, I've learned from guys who have, Woken up at 50, 55, 60 years old, women too, um, and they're just unhappy. They realize they spent their whole life climbing the wrong fulfillment tree. And, you know, for me, I've been blessed to realize very early on in life that life to me, it's not about how much money you make or your prestige or your status. I've been able to humble myself and completely remove my ego from all the things that I do and the actions that I take. So I've built this wonderful life where. I have great balance. I do a sibling trip every year with my brother and sister. We knock out something on our bucket list. I do a trip every year with my mom. I knock out something on her bucket list. I do a trip with my dad, um, working on establishing a bro trip that we do every year during the same day. So I have this 
great balance with my loved ones in my life doing cool stuff. When I'm 80 years old, I'm going to look back and do be like, dude, I have 50 different experiences with all my loved ones where we knocked out a bucket list thing. Like that is going to be really cool. So uh, highly encourage people if they haven't already, like do a yearly sibling trip or, or family trip or, or something with loved ones or buddies and just having good balance is what I'm proud of. I'm very proud of myself and, and everything that I've done. That is the coolest idea I've heard on the podcast so far is like having a sibling trip or a bro trip or something like that. I'm trying to get my friend group to go do a trip every year in, in Vegas for March Madness or, or just something stupid like that, that we can all rally behind to make sure that we take a break from our busy lives and get together and share some experiences with it. So man, phenomenal answer there. Um, our last one is if you could sit down and eat a bowl of ice cream with anyone dead or alive, who would it be and why? Tony Robbins. He's had a huge impact on me. We talk about mindset. That's the number one thing preventing you from getting where you want it, where you want to go in life. I would love to sit down and just nerd out with that guy over a bowl of ice cream. Yeah. Either he could pound a ton of ice cream because he's like six, seven, <laughs> or he would give you some kind of gluten keto friendly, no sugar uh, yeah. ice cream because he's such a health nut too. So yeah, that would, I would love to listen to that conversation. He's humongous. I got to meet him once very briefly. And I, I mean, he is so much bigger. I mean, his hands, like his biggest his hands are huge. <laughs> yeah. Well, Brandon, fantastic conversation. If our listeners wanted to reach out and learn more about you or connect with you, where's the best place we could send them? Yeah, you can go to our website, hbgcapital.net. There's a free ebook, 100 questions passive investors should be asking before investing. There's tons of other, other educational content. I'm on Facebook, type in Brandon Cobb. I'm on Instagram. I'm on LinkedIn. We put out content every single day. Uh, we're all about adding value and getting to know people. Uh, if you want to schedule an introductory call to learn more about us, uh, we'd love to learn more about you. Uh, again, that's at the website, hbgcapital.net. We look forward to connecting. Perfect. And we'll have all your socials in the uh, show notes as well. Cool, Thanks, man. Brandon. Well, Matt, I appreciate it. This was fun. Yeah, absolutely. We'll have to have it back on again. Thank you for listening to Ice Cream with Investors. If you like what we serve you here, it would mean the world to me if you would like, subscribe, and leave a review on your favorite podcast app.